Revelation chapter 5. We, were you singing about heaven uh, because you knew we were in Revelation, or, or were you just trying to get the easy ones? What? Yeah, it's a good fit. Well, well we're going to be in heaven tonight. Um, I, I don't know literally or not, but definitely uh, in our scripture. Revelation chapter 5. So last week we talked about Christ. And we talked about the one on the throne. And we realized that he is holy, holy, holy. We talked about the, the visions that John was seeing. And some of these, I imagine, uh, if you were to think of the pictures that he's painting, it's not quite what he's seeing, but he's just came. I, I don't know exactly how to say it, but it was like, kind of like this. Kind, when I looked at him, he was kind of like precious jewels. I can't really describe him. So as close as I can in what I'm writing down. One of the big things to remember um, in this type of literature, and you'll see it again in Revelation 5, is that what we're reading, even if it's not precisely literally true in the sense that this is exactly what he's seeing, uh, it still gives us the idea. Sometimes you read poetry, and you don't read poetry um, quite the same way that you would read um, Charles Dickens, quite the same way you would read um, the articles of incorporation for a company. It's totally different, and it's meant to be different. The language is different. It's it's different for a reason. Um, this, what we're reading back in last week and in this week, he is doing his best to describe what he's seeing. But what he's saying is true. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see a lamb with seven horns on his head and seven eyes. That doesn't mean he saw a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. This is that might be symb- that might be poetic. But that doesn't mean that this just isn't true, so you can just scrap everything that he said and come up with your own meaning. So this is the balance in understanding this kind of literature. So do your best to see what he's saying, but more than just what he says on paper, see what he's getting at. Because he's saying something that's more important than exactly how it looks. Listen to Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the a scroll written within and back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Pray with me. Father, as we are transported into the very throne room of heaven, Father, give us eyes to see what we long to see. Give us ears to hear what we have longed to hear. We want to see you. We want to hear you. So speak, Lord. We, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. After everything that's happened in chapter 4, that's pretty incredible. The story continues. He has seen these, uh, this one on the throne that he can't describe except to say he's kind of like precious jewels. And there's this, this sea of glass before him and right around his throne there are these living creatures that that I can't quite describe but one kind of looks like a lion and one kind of looks like a bear one kind of looks like a man and one kind of looks like an eagle I don't know what else to say about them and then there are these 24 thrones around and each one is sitting one of these elders and remember last time I said I don't know who the elders are but I don't care because they don't care who they are they just care about the one on the throne because all they're doing is worshiping him and praising him But there are these elders sitting all around the throne. Night and day, day and night, they are ever praising God. And every time the living creatures praise God, the elders bow down and worship and throw down their crowns because it's all pointless and meaningless and worthless compared to the one whom they're worshiping. And still, that's not all the vision. This is the same vision. This is He's picking right up where he left off. If you didn't have a big five in your Bible, you wouldn't know this is a different thing because he just keeps right on with the story. Then he looks at the one on the throne. He's seeing all this and he's hearing the praises that are ever going forth from these creatures and from these elders watching all this unfold and then he looks and he notices the one on the throne has a scroll. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. This could be the word book. It could be the word scroll. Some people argue about that. I don't know why. The one who's holding it is much more important. But he has this scroll in his hand. And it's written on the front and the back. Now, you got to know a little bit about scroll manufacturing here to get what he's saying. In order to build a scroll, what you would do is you would take papyrus leaves and you would put them together. You'd get some kind of glue-like stuff. And, of course, this was made in Egypt right along the banks of the Nile. So you'd use some Nile River water. And just like making plywood, you'd put these things together, and then you'd apply heavy pressure. You would press them down. It would squeeze out all the extra water, 
get the glue to adhere to both surfaces really well and make them together. But when you did it, the leaves on one side, if you did the leaves both like this, both facing the same direction, it wouldn't be strong. It would tear. So to make it stronger, they would do like this. One would be this way and one would be this way. Okay? One would be horizontal, one would be vertical. Okay? That's how they would make these scrolls. Now, you could write on both sides of the scroll. And all you do is you get to the end of a page, you just attach another page. But any of y'all ever seen a scroll? Any of you ever seen a big scroll? I have. In a, a, I went to a Jewish worship service and they had the scroll of the law. And it was big. I mean, a guy maybe a little bit bigger than Daryl's size, Mr. Muscles, um, he carried it. And he was carrying it like this because it was so big and heavy. And he was struggling to carry. I mean, it, it was hard for him to carry. The problem with scrolls is they get heavy, right? My Bible's fairly big. It's got a little bit of weight to it. Now, imagine my Bible being this big and me walking around like this. Giant table, flat, bigger than, bigger than this pulpit. Probably, actually a little bit probably a bit wider than the communion table, that they roll this out on in order to read it. Um, huge scroll on it written the words of God. I say that because sometimes there would be so much to write, you couldn't just put it on one side. You had to write it on the other side too. You had to use front and back because the scroll would be way too big. It would be, you couldn't carry it. The material was so important that you put it all in one scroll. You, could, you don't want several scrolls all over the place because it's so important. It all needs to be together. Front and the back. It was harder to write on the back because vertical, it's harder to, you're kind of writing against the grain, but you could do it. And that's exactly what happens with this scroll. What's written on this scroll is so important that they've used front and back. It's so vital, so necessary that all of it be together, that they don't just use multiple scrolls. It's all one scroll, front and back. So he has the scroll in his hand, and it's sealed with seven seals. Okay? A little bit back in time. Usually we talk about this kind of thing when we're talking about sealing the tomb. You get some wax or clay or something um, that's usually wax. You burn to melt the wax, and then you put some wax on the page and then you take a seal what would properly be called a seal a signet ring or something like that and you press it in and that would mark that that is sealed and only certain people so uh, if you sent a letter to a general during war if that signet ring showed the sign of a general a lieutenant couldn't open it he didn't have authority he didn't have the power he wasn't worthy of opening that seal. So he wasn't worthy of reading the message inside. Once again, the general, the general has the worthiness, the ability, the, he's deserving enough to open that seal. And so he opens that seal to see the message. Okay? This is what's pictured on the book. But there's not one seal. No, this is Revelation. We're going to do this. We're going to do it, right? There's seven seals. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it's not like you could kind of peek into the scroll. It's sealed in such a way that you don't know what's written on it. They would often leave the first bit of 
so that when you rolled up the scroll, the contents could be hidden because that last bit to roll would kind of roll over everything. So it would be blank. So there you go. You got this scroll. You don't know what's on the inside. You just see these seven seals. And an angel, he says a mighty angel, proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open this? They look at the sign on the seals and they say, I can't. I'm sure the 24 elders are looking at it saying, well, I'm, I, I don't have that authority. The four living creatures? Nope, not us. Maybe we can find someone else. Let's, let's call out to all the angels. Gabriel, how about you? Are you worthy to open this? No. Michael? No. Lucifer? Never mind. <laughs> Who's worthy? Nope, nobody, nobody in heaven. What about on the earth? Maybe there's a person that's worthy. Maybe there's a, maybe there's someone that's already died, an Elijah or a Moses. Maybe they're worthy. No, they're not worthy. He calls out to all creation. If there are aliens on distant planets, they would not have been worthy. He calls out to everyone, dead or alive, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, nobody can be found. Nobody's worthy. Think about that. Here is in the hand of the one on the throne this scroll with seven seals and when they call out who's worthy, nobody can answer. Nobody has the authority. None are worthy. This isn't just powerful enough. This isn't like Alexander the Great. I don't know if y'all have ever heard the story of the Gordian Knot. There was this great uh, knot that they had put in the center of this town. I can't remember what town it was, but... Uh, the, the myth was whoever can untie this knot would be the one sent by the gods to rule over that city. People had tried and tried and tried. They couldn't get it. Finally, Alexander the Great comes in, takes a sword and just cut all the way through it and says, they're done. I'm, I'm in charge. <laughs> it's not by power. It's not the one who's strongest. It's the one who's most worthy. So who's worthy? Who is it? I, I, I looked in the heavens. I look on the earth. I under the earth. There's nobody worthy. And John says in verse 4, not only no, nobody worthy to open it, nobody was even worthy to look into it. I mean, who's holding it? There's nobody even able to look into this to see it. And he starts to cry. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly. This would be, if you go to certain parts of the world, especially around the Middle East, and you have the death of someone those who care about them, they don't mourn quietly. They mourn loudly. What we saw on TV with the death of Soleimani, um, there may be some people legitimately mourning. There may be some people not legitimately mourning, but that's how they mourn. They're very public with their grief. Now, again, some of that, a lot of that was probably just, I don't want to get shot by this government or anything. So, that's that plays a lot into that, but the you saw the Ayatollah crying. That was that was demonstrating grief. That that's very that's how they do it. They don't. It's not private and personal. It's public. It's announced. In some ways, it's kind of good to grieve that way because you don't have to worry about what other people think. You just grieve. That's what he's doing. He's crying out loud because. No one's worthy to open the scroll. Now, he'd just been told at the beginning of chapter 4, come on up here and let me show you what's going to happen after this. Is he crying because 
Oh man, now I get to see. Is he pouting? No. No, this looks like the plan of God is being thwarted. If no one can open the scroll, then how will God's plan be unveiled? He knows what's in that scroll is infinitely important to what God's plan is. Maybe it is written down the plan of God. Maybe it's just something, a crucial part of it. He knows that whatever's in that scroll, he hasn't seen it yet. He hasn't read Revelation yet. But he knows whatever's in that scroll matters. And if the plan of God is going to happen, that scroll has to get opened. And he starts to cry because nobody's worthy. Nobody can open it. God's plan is at danger. It's in risk. And then one of the elders, I don't know if he's close to the elders or not, like in proximity, but one of the elders says to him, don't cry. Don't cry, John. There is one worthy. If you want to see the complete ineptitude of man, it's a pretty good picture of it. But it's not just man that's inept. It's all creation. Everything, everything God has made is unable to open that scroll. There's no bird, no bear, no fish, no planet or star, no Marvin Martian. None of them are able to open the scroll. You know, when we talk about ourselves, talk about the fact that we are unable to bring ourselves to grace. It's probably... It's probably the safest thing to say that without God doing the work, I could never have come to him. And I was a nine-year-old kid when it happened. I didn't even have time to start doing drugs. I didn't have time to get involved in gangs. I wasn't doing the kinds of things that people can talk about in amazing transformation experience of, of salvation. I was just a kid in a Christian school who could not have pleased God and could not have been right with him except that he moved first. We're completely inept. There's just nothing we can do. And John shows it. This shows us that we are not worthy. There's one who is. We no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this is not a scriptural reference. It kind of is, but it isn't. When um, Jacob is blessing his sons, he calls Judah a lion's cub. Okay, It's about as close as you get to finding this in Scripture. But it does make sense. I mean, the cub is all grown up. Jesus comes from Judah through David. If we had read the genealogies in Matthew 3, you would have seen that. Or Luke 3, you would have seen that. You could also see it in Matthew 1, in those genealogies. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Right here, the elder calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, what does that, what does that conjure up? That image of a lion? Fierce. What else? Power. You know, I think of royalty. That king of the jungle sort of motif. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. After all, Judah was the clan that the, the kings come from. The root of David. Again, not exactly scriptural. Isaiah calls him shoot from the stump of Jesse. One's almost like, no, it's one that Jesse grew out of. He's conquered. You see, the line of the tribe of Judah has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The way he constructs the sentence, the conquering um, has a place of prominence. It's almost like he says, he's conquered. 
that lion of the tribe of Judah, that root of David, the lion, the root, has conquered. So he can open the scroll. Can he open it because he's powerful enough? No. Practically anybody could open it. I mean, it doesn't take much strength to open a wax seal. Now, to do it without tearing a page, that might take a little more. But it's not about a power thing, is it? Who has the authority? He has the authority. Who deserves? Jesus. He's the one who deserves. He's the one who can open the scroll. Interestingly, he calls him the line of the tribe of Judah. But verse seven or verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb. Wait, 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 wait. I don't know much about biology. Wasn't very good at biology, but a lion and a lamb are two very different things, aren't they? Lion, fierce, powerful, regal, ferocious. Lamb, I don't really think of fierce or ferocious or regal. When I see lamb, I think, you know, when I think of a lamb, you know what I think of? I think of something that's, meh. Like it just doesn't, nothing, nothing. I saw a a lamb running straight at me, I'd say, oh, that's a lamb. (laughs) I saw a lion look at me, I'd be afraid. Maybe if it was a ram with a bunch of horns and stuff, I might try to get out of the way. Lambs just don't don't strike fear in my heart. Do they you? Any of y'all afraid of lambs? Hey, I could make a sweater out of that guy. Come here. Come here. Come at me. Get my razor. Let's go. But he sees a lamb. Not only a lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He sees not just a lamb, he sees a sacrificed lamb. I wonder who he could be talking about. Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you know, that's exactly how he becomes worthy. He becomes worthy in a couple of ways. One way is taking away the sins of the world. The other way, the way that he was able to take away the sins of the world is not submitting to sin. Remember we talked about this morning him being tempted in the desert? Yeah, yeah. That makes him worthy to open the seals and the scroll. Because we serve a God who has not only purchased our salvation with His own Son's blood, but who has lived the life that His Son lived, who died the sacrificial death that He died and rose again. Because He is one who is tempted and yet without sin. Because He is a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That's how we know that He's worthy to open the scroll and to open the seals on the scroll. Because He alone could be worthy. No other person could do it. Too too sinful. No angel could do it. They, They haven't lived that kind of life. Died that kind of death. Risen in that kind of resurrection. He pictures this lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A picture of his power in his might. Seven is a number of completion, so very possibly he's saying this is one strong, wise lamb. The one with all strength. The one with all wisdom. The one with all worthiness. And he went, the lamb, walks up the throne. This is another way I know that he's worthy. One one place in scripture it talks about God as being in unapproachable light. And this lamb just walks right up to him and takes the scroll out of his hand. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to walk into a king's throne room and just take whatever's in his hand. He must have great authority 
to even approach the one on the throne, not to mention take the scroll from him. Well, it's easy when you are the one on the throne. Otherwise, I wouldn't suggest it. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And you know what they do? They start worshiping. Verse 9, and they sing a new song. One commentator put it this way, when God performs a new act in the story of his redemption and his consummation, a new song has to be sung to praise him for that act because never before have they quite seen anything like this. Think about it. Why do we have a hymn like Amazing Grace in our hymnals? Because one day God did something that changed a life. And the only thing the writer of that hymn, John Newton, could do in response, was praise him with a new song. There was a time when Amazing Grace was a new song. Think about that. There was a time when It Is Well With My Soul had not been written, and Horatio Spafford had to write a new song to praise God in what was really a difficult circumstance. You see, whenever God acts in history, the only way we can respond is with praise, but but sometimes the praise we know just ain't enough. We have to come up with new praise. Praise that we've never praised Him with before because of the way that He's acted, because of the way He's demonstrated Himself. And that's exactly what the angels are doing. They're praising Him with a new song because no song that exists is worthy enough. No song quite describes the praise that He's due in this moment because of what He's doing. By the way, also notice, he is, they are singing the praise to the Lamb. Multiple times throughout this book, you will see the Father and the Son lumped together as an object of praise. That's not by accident, because He's the one worthy. The Lamb is worthy. God is worthy, because they're one and the same. I don't quite know how the Trinity works. All I know is that I, 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 I want to know more of all three of them. Three of them. There we go. I can't quite describe how it happens. I just know that if God worship, so, you know, if I can understand God, then my God's too small. But they sing to him a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You could try to break this all apart and say, oh, well, he's approaching it from the political standpoint and from the ethnic standpoint and uh, the standpoint of languages that people... He's just talking about everybody, every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. But what about, yeah, them too. What about those people in that island nation that are, yeah, them too. What about those more than 4,000 unreached, unengaged people groups that today have never heard of Jesus Christ? Yeah, them too. And yeah, there are more than 4,000 groups of people that do not know the name of Christ, that do not have a word of Scripture in their language. Audio, video, written, any form. And that'll be there. Now, does that mean God's redeemed everybody and no matter what you do, it doesn't matter because you're redeemed? No. It's free for anyone who wants it, but I'm going to tell you something. Not everybody wants it. God is willing to save whoever will come and call on his name. There's a whole lot of folks that aren't willing. But every nation, every tribe, every people, every 
language, all ransomed by God in the same way. Christ died once for all sins. Not Christ died once for some sins and then he had to die again for others. Not Christ died once for this group of people, but that group of people have to abide by the law of Moses. It's not like that. He died once for all. Because that was enough. And that makes him worthy. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. I find it interesting that it's singular voice, but a whole lot of angels. It's almost like they're all united together in their praise. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to get a meeting with five folks together, but it's really hard to get five folks to agree on something, like a time to meet. I can't imagine getting thousands of thousands and thousands of ten thousands. That's what that word myriad, by the way, means. Ten thousands of ten thousands. Don't do the math. He's saying it's you can't even number. And yet, They're all saying with a loud voice, singular voice, in unison, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now, they don't know him as the Lamb who was slain because they've experienced that. They've known it that way because they've watched it happen. But in a couple chapters, we're going to see some folks who have been on the other end of that. And we're going to hear some of the same kind of words from them. When the saints of God are gathered around the throne and are praising God for all eternity... We're going to be saying some of the same things that those angels are saying. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and everything else. I mean, that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? The one who is all-powerful, who has all things, who knows all things, who is capable of all things, who deserves all honor, who is most glorious, who is the blessed one. The one who defines blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Again, everything. Praising him. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what the four living creatures said. Amen. And once again, you think they'd get tired of it. They bow and worship. You see, here's the thing about God. No matter how much you praise him, there is so much more reason to praise him. That praise is not a specific action in a temporal point of time. That you don't praise him once and are done with it. What's the hymn? 10,000 years and will just be started? Praise is something that takes an eternity to do because he is eternally worth praise. And every time he does something new, Every time he acts in a different way, every time he involves himself in your life or mine, he deserves even more praise. I can't imagine what it's like to praise God that much. But all I do know is that when I praise him, he does something in me. He becomes bigger. He doesn't become bigger. I just see him a little bit better. It's like, it's like if you look through, um, it's like if you look through a, a toilet paper roll. And you try to look, and you see just a little bit, and you move, and you see a little bit more, and you see a little bit more, and you don't really get the full picture. But if you take that toilet paper roll, and you back it away from your eye a good bit, and you see everything around it, that's kind of what he does. He takes the blinders off. He, I, I am so singularly focused on one thing that I miss. I, I mean, 
There could be pink elephants walking around the room. I wouldn't know. But he takes the blinders off. He helps me to see a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And the more that I view him, the more that I realize he's worthy of praise, the more that I realize that I am woefully inadequate, that I am unworthy, but that he is worthy. And it changes me. I don't know how that works in 10,000 years. I don't know how God can keep getting bigger over all eternity, except that he's God. So I look forward to finding out how exactly that works. He is worthy. Not only to take the scroll, he's worthy of me. (laughs) Not because I'm special. That's all I have. And even though it's not enough, all I can do is give it to him and say, Lord, this is all I've got. I just want to love you more. I just want to praise you. I just want to live for you. One day, when God finishes everything and makes me the way that it's supposed to be, he gets rid of all the junk, fully and completely, for all eternity. Maybe I'll be a little bit better. Father, we are all inadequate, but you are worthy. We are all woefully, woefully unworthy. So God, we thank you that you are worthy. You're worthy to be praised. You're worthy to open the scroll. You're worthy to do your work. Father, help us remember that. When life's hard and we're asked to do things that we don't think we can do, when situations arise and and they're not fair, or people are doing us wrong, or it's just hard to keep going, remind us of who you are. Give us the bigger picture. Because once we see you, everything else falls into place. Father, help us. Help us to honor you with our lives this week. Help us to be better every day at praising you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.